Brandy Fluker Oakley Esquire is state representative for the 12th Suffolk District, serving parts of Dorchester, High Park, Mattapan, and Milton. As a first term legislator, Brandy serves on the following committees, transportation, the judiciary, community development, and small business, and racial equity, civil rights, and inclusion. She proudly serves on the Women's Caucus Executive Board as a representative for the Massachusetts Black and Latino Legislative Caucus. Born and raised in Boston by a single mother from the segregated South, Brandy has a long-standing passion for social justice and organized her first protest in the third grade. Never one to accept the status quo, Brandy has dedicated her career to advocacy, education, equity, and progressive causes. Upon graduating from Boston Latin School, she attended Syracuse University and graduated with bachelor's degrees in both social work and public policy. Brandy, a member of Baltimore's Teachers Union, taught third grade, earning her master's in education at the John Hopkins University before attending law school at Emory University. She became a public defender with the Committee for Public Counsel Services in the Boston Municipal and Chelsea District Courts. While zealously representing clients, Brandy noti noticed and witnessed firsthand systemic inequities uh, and how those who are not served well by our public school system are served very well by our criminal justice system. This observation launched her career into policy and political advocacy at the city and state level. She has professionally worked as an organizer, an executive director, and everything in between. Brandy's work solidified her belief in the power of democracy and that communities are more than capable of identifying solutions to address their most pressing needs and challenges. Brandy formerly served as a member of the Mattahunt Community Center Advisory Board in partnership with Wheelock College and was active in Mattapan United. Brandy is the founder and president of Delighting in God Ministries, DIG, a faithful member of her church, a member of the Georgester YMCA, a life member of the NAACP, a practicing attorney, and a member of both the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association and the Women's Bar Association, and an active member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, AKA, for those who don't know. He is the only child of Reverend Brenda A. Fluker and fiercely protective of her mom. Join me in welcoming State Rep. Brandy Fluker Oakley to Hot Mama Chronicles. Amelia, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here on Hot Mama. I'm honored and excited for the conversation today. I am too. I feel like I've read your intro. I feel like there's so many uh, synergies. You are definitely a part of the family. So welcome and I'm so glad to see you. First and foremost, how are you? Thank you for asking that question <laughs> because so often people ask it and they don't really want to know. I'm I'm hanging in there. I um, tell folks that I'm exhausted, but so grateful to be able to serve my community in this capacity, uh, burning the candle at both ends, but it's also such a huge motivation and motivator. Um, and I'm just really trying to make sure that everyone in my district thrives and wins and that we all can be our best selves while we're here on this earth. I love it. Um, so my first question is, you went to Boston Latin, um, and I'm so intrigued because I also went to Boston Latin, and one of the things that you learn at Boston Latin is how to declaim 
poetry, prose, it could be anything from a composition. So what was your favorite thing to declaim? Yeah, um, it's so cool that you went to Boston Latin as well. You know, you do so many declamations over the course of one academic year, multiply that by six. So if I could dig back into the recesses of my mind, there are two pieces that I recall doing on more than one occasion. So I believe they must be my favorites. Um, one was Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman Too, um, was one of my favorite pieces to declaim. And the other one was Phenomenal Woman by Maya Angelou. Um, so those are my two favorite pieces that I declaimed <laughs> during my time it. there. <laughs> I love it. Two powerful women, um, two amazing thought leaders in their own right. That's, that's awesome. So one of your constituents is actually my grandmother, my Nana, I call her. And I had asked her that I was going to talk to you and she said, oh, that's cool. She's my state rep. And, um, you know, that's how she sounds in my head. And so, uh, I had asked her, you know, if you had the chance to talk to her, what would you say to her? And so she wanted me to ask you, why did you choose to run for this district, especially for Mattapan? Because that's where she lives. Shout out to, to Nana and thank you so much for bringing her into this space and elevating this question on her behalf. Um, part of the reason why I ran is because I am from this community. I have de dedicated my career to, to service and my mom would tell you that I've been an advocate since the first time I could talk. Uh, you read in my bio how I organized my first protest in the third grade, my second in the fifth grade. By middle school, there was no stopping me. And I think in particular, the 12th Suffolk, which encompasses parts of Mattapan, Dorchester, Hyde Park, and Milton, particularly as a Mattapan native, which I do consider myself to, to be. Um, although for the Bostonians, technically, after I was born, I went to Dorchester and Cobman Square. But right before my second birthday, my mom bought a house in Mattapan and that's all I remember. So I claim Mattapan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, this community is full of resources in terms of the people. I think Mattapan has the third highest home ownership rate of any other town in the city of Boston. And so these are folks who are here to stay, who have been here for decades. My mom is in that number. I'm sure your Nana's in that number. I lost my grandmother when I was 13, but I have so many surrogate grandmas around the community in Mattapan who have been here for three, four decades. Um, so there's strong staying power and a true investment in folks seeing this community thrive. And additionally, particularly when I decided to run, it was right before the COVID pandemic hit us. And we certainly know that as, as a community, particularly a predominantly community of color, that we often feel the effects of these global events far greater than other communities. And that's all baked into systemic oppression and racism, the whole nine that so many of us are intimately familiar with. And so I thought what a great opportunity to continue my trajectory of service to continue to give back to my community and leverage my advocacy skills in a way that truly ensures that we bounce and recover from all of the ill effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so um, with some prayer and consulting wise counsel, I, I decided to run and here we are today. That's amazing. So I want to talk to you about just this fire, really what I reading your bio is really a calling upon your life to do this work. And what gave birth to that passion for advocacy and for social justice? Like where, like, what was the seed? What was it that you're yeah. like, this is me, this is me. <laughs> you know, I really appreciate the, that question because um, there's this 
this old joke that says, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. And I kid you not, Amelia, nearly everything I've done professionally is something that I told God I was never going to do it. And so I know he's just like laughing with a bowl of popcorn at me right now, <laughs> given my, my life's trajectory. And I think for me, I attribute a lot of it to my mom. So she grew up in the segregated South down in Alabama and when she graduated from college with a major in mathematics, Liberty Mutual here was recruiting. Um, and that's back when there was a stronger effort to recruit diverse talent. And so she moved to Boston at 20 years old, not knowing a soul. Um, and she came up here, was working with Liberty Mutual. She uh, also identifies as a Christian, found a home at Concord Baptist Church, which during those times they had ministries based on southern states because this is still a part of the great migration so there was a virginia ministry a north carolina ministry an alabama ministry so when blacks were coming to boston they could find community and connection uh, so she was part of the alabama ministry and she would just always tell me stories i'm an only child she's a single parent it is just the two of us like when i say i'm fiercely protective of her like that is no joke and no lie that's that's my boo like i love my mom i know everyone loves their mom but like it's just something special about that only child single parent connection and she would just tell me stories i would always go back to alabama during the summers before i could work and she would point to me the entrance she had to go to um, at the doctor's office or where she had to stand in line to get an ice cream or the fact that at the movie theater, this was where she was able to sit. And so I think just hearing those stories and I remember when I launched my campaign, one of my classmates from elementary school moderated and did an intro and he shared his reflections of me when we were kids. And he said, Brandy has always been an advocate and never afraid to speak up and tell people when they're wrong, including the principal, which is true because there were times I told the principal, actually, this is not fair. This, <laughs> this makes no sense. And I was eight, nine years old. And so I attribute my mom not only for sharing the stories, but when I would see a problem, she would say, oh, write the president a letter. And so she would encourage me to use my voice. Oh, you want to change that policy at your school? Organize a process. She would give me the tools to exercise my voice. And the other thing I appreciate about my mom is certainly society has a way of having advocates not advocate or they'd rather we fall in line, <laughs> go along to get along, if you will. And when school leaders and administrators would, in my mom's word, want to kill my spirit, she would say, no, I know there's a purpose for this. I don't know what it is, but this is who Brandy is supposed to be like. Let's find ways for her to channel it, but I don't want us to take it away from her. So I give all credit to my mom in seeing the skill in me, cultivating it in me and being my number one advocate um, when I couldn't speak for myself. Shout out to mom, to all the moms that give us the tools to be great. Yes, um, yes. So, uh, so, you know, I'm curious, you ran as a legislator in this district, you won. Um, so, you know, as a first, in your first term, what are the lessons that you've learned? Um, not knowing that you had to do this work and advocate and be in this thing um, with the pandemic um, in the background. Yeah, I really appreciate that question because this whole experience has been a learning process from running for office to getting in office to trying to, to lead. I'm coming up on my first 100 days next week in office. So all of it has been a steep learning curve and grateful for the entire experience. I think for me, part of my energy in addition to being an advocate is someone who likes to respond right away, like do things quickly, move things along. And what I realized 
and that part of that stems from a, a customer service orientation of like helpfulness, responsiveness, all of those things, which are great attributes. What I have learned as I continue to have conversations, not only with constituents, but other legislators and advocacy organizations is that it's okay to tell people, let me take some time and think about that. Like, I don't have to necessarily respond or commit or like put myself in a box, if you will, right away. And because I love gathering data and seeking alternative perspectives, that also gives me time to, to get a full picture. And because I desire to be so responsive and helpful, sometimes I might like say a thing before I've fully processed the thing, which can definitely land you into some, some hot water. <laughs> For sure, for sure. So I am intrigued, um, you know, at being from Boston, growing up in Boston, and now, um, you know, working and living and breathing in Boston as my home base, how um, much more that we need women of color across the board at all levels of government, including, you know, city councilors, state reps, state senators, if you will. And so my question, um, for you is that, you know, um, we need more women to run. That's right. <laughs> you, were so, um, you were so courageous, even though it probably didn't show up for you that way, but you were courageous. You said, I'm gonna do this and you went all in. And so how are you helping to build the pipeline for others? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. Amelia, actually all your questions, I appreciate. So I probably should stop saying that after every question, but it's so true. Um, I think for for me, it's, it's in a variety of ways. So one, I just wanna share some statistics because there's a lot of conversation about imposter syndrome and folks don't, folks know it, but as a woman and particularly a black woman to experience it is something entirely different. So studies show that it takes a woman to be asked nine times if she'll run for office before she says yes. Hmm. Studies also show in other sectors, and LinkedIn did this um, study back in May of 2019, where they were trying to figure out what percentage of qualifications um, does a man or a woman need to see themselves in before they apply to a role. LinkedIn study in 2019, this gender insight study revealed that for men, if they saw themselves in 60% of the qualifications, so whatever the job description says, if they're in 60% of those, they will apply. For women, they found that women needed to see themselves in 100% of the qualifications before they would even decide to apply to a job. Hmm. And I share those statistics because those those studies, neither one accounted for intersectionality, right? So it's just like textbook, you know, man, textbook woman, it doesn't layer, layer in race, gender identity, sexual orientation, you know, all, all these things that make up a person's identity. We'd imagine the more marginalized identities, the greater those statistics will be, right? So for a black, a black trans woman, it might be 125%, right, of, of what they need to see themselves in order to apply. And so I share that to say, part of what I try to do with whatever platform I have is just to let women know that they are enough as they are. Because too often for all the experiences that we have had in this world, somehow we get that self-talk, that tape that plays, that says, oh no, you can't do that. Or you know, you can only go this far. Or oh, you probably shouldn't say that. Oh, maybe don't wear that. Or don't, you know, all, all these things that creep into our head that limit us from being our authentic self. So wherever I go, whenever someone gives me a microphone, I just like to tell folks, especially my women, you are enough as you are and your voice matters. Another thing I like to do is to encourage people to use their voice. 
I never forget one of my, my managers, also a black woman from Boston, so it was a gift to have her as a manager. And she would say, Brandy, when we're one-on-one, -on -one, you tell me all these great ideas of like what we should do, how things should change, but when we're in a larger group setting, you don't say anything. And I told her, I said, oh, that's because I figured y'all already thought about it. And she like looked at me like her head was gonna spin. And she said, Brandy, that's why I hired you. Like she said, your perspective matters. Your input matters. You are just as smart as any other person at this company in the room. Like, what are you talking about? Speak up, say, say what's on your mind. And so those, that type of encouragement certainly helped me. And I like to pay that forward. Um, definitely uh, in partnering with other women of color who are elected officials. Um, in fact, uh, this is a, a brainchild of Councillor Mejia um, that she's working on to actually have kind of like a weekend boot camp for, for women of color who are interested in, in running. So I'll be presenting at that and so grateful for her, her leadership. Um, and I think Rep Miranda and others are, are involved in that. Um, I also tried to, to think about it in terms of access to opportunity. I am proud to say that my campaign team, so my campaign manager, my fundraising director, my treasurer, all women, um, and the majority of them women of color. And so that's amazing. <laughs> like, I think that's powerful. Uh, as a first term legislator, I only get one staff member. Um, he is not a woman. You know, I don't say unfortunately because he's great, but didn't hit hit the mark there. However, the interns that I have in my office, I have six interns. A hundred percent of them are women. Over fifty percent of them are women of color, and they're owning meaningful projects that they can put on their resume that they can show. I did this. These are the skills that I gained. This is how I pushed myself out my comfort zone or develop the skills I'm studying even more. And so that's been amazing to work with them and just give back to young women in in that way. So those are some of the things that that I'm doing, and I just can't say it enough. Women, you are enough. You matter. Your perspective matters. Don't be afraid to speak up and show out as you are. That's amazing. And that's so powerful. Um, in terms of the past year, you know, we all were working from home virtually. We we're learning home from home. We we're on screens and we witnessed all these things that happened in the atmosphere, whether it was, you know, uh, witnessing the murder of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or talking about Ahmaud Aubrey or talking about all of those who've lost their lives to senseless violence um, and dealing with the conversations around race and what that looked like. I know a lot of people, myself included, got involved in organizing um, and didn't know the power and kind of the systems of um, how to organize. And so just learned a lot over the past year. So I want to talk to you because again, um, you are over the district as a representative and um, there are so many different community organizations across the, the, the parts of the district that you represent. How do you work with these um, organizations to, to build change and to, you know, um, move from looking at symptoms and just really focusing on the systems? Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's it's a process. It all starts with relationships and, and building those. And certainly throughout the campaign trail, I knew of some organizations and some players uh, in the 12th Suffolk, but was so grateful to make new connections and forge new relationships and new opportunities to support and meet the needs of our people. And so part of it is just continuing to have those conversations. When opportunities come up, for example, Black Boston COVID Coalition has been pushing very hard to have a, a vaccine site in our community. They were able to um, 
put resources at the Reggie Lewis Center and then also um, have people volunteer and even paid opportunities for different roles that are required, such as translation services, being a greeter, etc. And there was an opportunity where they were doing a really big push to make sure that people who had access to the vaccine looked like us, recognizing our communities have been hardest hit. And that's the difference, right, between equity and equality. Equality is you treat everyone the same no matter what. Equity says, okay, who needs the resources the most and how do we give them more access to help level the playing field? And so I have heard from many like civic association leaders how access to, to vaccines have been a challenge. So as soon as... BBCC, Black Boston COVID Coalition, reached out. I reached out to all the relevant civic leaders and said, hey, there's this opportunity to push to like help people get a vaccine. Please spread the word. Here's the process, et cetera. So part of it is just having conversations with people to know what they need and how they want to help and then being on the lookout for or making those connections to when those, those opportunities arise, which means that I spend a lot of time talking to folks and there are so many people to talk to that I know I'm not talking to as many people <laughs> as I need to, or like I'm trying to make make my rounds, go go through the list, get in the queue. Um, but a lot of it's just about building relationships and listening intently to what the needs are and where there might be some synergy and connection and making and foraging those as well. That's awesome. So I'm very intrigued with, by the fact that you put your faith front and center, especially in your bio. So I'm curious to for you to talk about how does your faith intersect with your purpose? Yeah. So for me, they are very much inter intertwined. Um, and I shared earlier, you know, the joke, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. And I would say I've seen that play out in my life repeatedly in so, in so many ways <laughs> that now I'm the one laughing <laughs> at the plans that I made. And I think for me, I spent a lot of time, and this goes back to the imposter syndrome or like not thinking I was enough personally. I spent a lot of time running from things that were my gifts and talents because I didn't think that I was supposed to be the one to utilize them. Hmm. And when I had that like aha moment or to use the colloquialism, come to Jesus moment, which in my case, it literally was a <laughs> <laughs> come to Jesus moment. Um, when I had that realization that I was created to do this. And this means advocate. This means manage teams and people. This means make a difference in the world. Um, this means be a leader in some form, whether it's working at a nonprofit elected official, leadership shows up in so many different ways. But when I realized that's what I was born to do and stepped into that power, there was a certain amount of freedom and peace that I hadn't experienced because I was trying to do and be something that I was not called and created to do and be. And so for me, it's very hard to separate my, my faith from my purpose, my faith from who I am, because it's been such an instrumental part of me over the years um, that they're just intertwined. So <laughs> I, think, I think that answered your question, Amelia. If not, you can follow up and probe some more. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, no, you definitely answered it. I think, um, if you can talk about, just share like a story, because I think so many times, especially as women, um, we don't necessarily know, you know, we have so many voices because we're so intuitive. Um, that's in our DNA, in our, in our makeup. So when we think we're, we're feeling a nudge, we're like, oh, I don't know if that's me or if that's really something, you know, yeah. whatever you believe is pulling at you. So can you talk about just how you had to delineate that pull? Sure, sure. 
Um, definitely have have some some stories, um, and I'll, I'll share two if I may to sure. any other women out there who might be trying to figure out what is this nudge? Is it me? Is it something more? Um, one is related. They're both related to, to purpose. So. I was living in New Orleans. We had that worst winter on record here, Amelia, where like we got 15 inches of snow like every Wednesday, Thursday, one way street. And <laughs> yes. I was just like working for an organization that I could literally live anywhere in the country. And I remember like shoveling, not knowing where to put the snow, breaking my back. And I was like, why do I live here? Like, no, seriously, why do I live here? I actually can live anywhere as long as I have internet access. So I moved to New Orleans. So as far away from winter as possible, moved to New Orleans, had a whole big going away party, no intention of coming back. People brought me gifts. It was like, bon voyage, Brandy, like enjoy your Southern life. So I'm in New Orleans. Um, the cost of living is significantly cheaper. I'm making, you know, decent money. Still have significant student loan debt from law school, but making decent money, living my best life, love that city, all the good things. And probably a year and a half into living there, I, I just kept hearing save money, which I, I'm decent. Like I, I don't ball out. If I can't afford it, I don't buy it. Like I don't have to impress anybody. That's not, that's not the lane I'm in. And I think to myself like, okay, God, but I am saving money. Like here's how much of my paycheck I set aside. I'm tithing, like I'm not extravagant. So in my mind, save money translated into make more money to save. So I started applying to jobs, right? So I'm applying to jobs in New Orleans or other jobs where, you know, you can live anywhere in order to, to do them. And I'm not getting any bites, no hits, no, no nothing. And so three months go by and I'm still hearing save money. And it's like, at this point, I'm not even getting manicures and pedicures. Like there is no self-care happening <laughs> in my life. Like I've cut all the corners that I can think to cut. Um, and I was like, well, my only big expense beyond my student loan payment is my rent, which in New Orleans, because the cost of living, I didn't want to talk about it compared to Boston rent. I had a two bedroom, two and a half bathroom townhouse with a balcony, $13.50 per month, which like in right near the heart of town. I know, which like in Boston for like $4,000, you might get a 256 foot square foot studio um, if you're near the downtown area. But like, I'm like, but God, like my apartment, yes, it's expensive, but relatively speaking, you know? So the only way I could think to save money was to move back home where I wouldn't have to have um, that rent as an expense. Of course, I give my mom a love offering every month, but it's not the same, you know, as market rent. So it was the end of July. So I decided to move back now. So I'm like, okay, move back to Boston. Um, I don't know why I'm gonna move back to Boston, but here we go. I moved back to Boston the weekend. Well, I started my move the last weekend in July of 2017. And we drove, my mom and I, my mom flew down to help me, you know, et cetera. We drove to Alabama, but for work, I had to go to New York to present. Uh, I was a facilitator on um, our inclusion, diversity, equity, um, two-day training we did. So I had to fly to New York to do that. So I just flew from Birmingham to do that. And then my, fly back, my mom and I would keep driving up, eat, up the coast. So I go, I deliver the training with my co-trainer. It's fabulous. Um, and then my vice president happened to be in the office. So it's the second day of the training. I see her on the lunch break. She says, oh, Brandy, when you're um, done, can you come see me? Like, can we talk? And I had just seen her in Houston earlier in the month about another client 
contract. So I thought she wanted to talk about that, right? right. So I'm like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll, we can talk. So I do the training. I go in to talk to her. And she's like, Brandy, we have to let you go. I said, what? Whoa. I said, come again. She's like, yeah. And there, there were like 14 people in the company. They were laying off. The announcement wasn't going to be public until the next day. But she was like, she said, because I see you here, I'm just going to tell you now. I was like, <laughs> like, it was just like one of those moments. But right. I knew now why I was being why? told to save money. Because had I stayed and rent's due August 1st, right? So had I stayed, I got laid off August 6th or something to that effect. What was that? Where was I going to get the money from? How it connects to purpose is there was a job at an organization um, to be executive director. And I had seen the job in 2016 when it was first posted, but I was like, mm, I'm in New Orleans now. Sorry, Boston. Like, I'm good, you know? And so I, I didn't even apply to the to the role. And then when I thought about it, because again, I'm trying to make more money, I was like, oh, maybe I should apply. But by the time I expressed my interest the second time around, they were making an offer to someone else. So I was like, okay, I guess it wasn't for me. That's cool. The last week of July, the CEO of that company had emailed me. So I'm, I'm in the process of moving to talk about the role because who, the person who they hired was moving on, et cetera. And I said, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to talk, but um, I'm in the process of moving back to Boston. Can we talk? Whatever that Monday was. So if I got laid off, let's say the Friday was August 4th, hypothetically, that Monday, August 7th, I was having an informational conversation about this role. Applied, went through the process, ended up getting the job. It was an executive director position at an advocacy organization. So how does that align to where I am today? Organizing educators, what do they care about? Supporting students with trauma, lobbying, going to the state house, going to city hall, testifying, building relationships. So all of the work, the groundwork I got from that job, wow. which I had already told myself wasn't for me from when I had looked at it the year before. And then I'm hearing a voice who I attribute to God telling me to save money. And I'm like, I ain't even doing nothing though. Like, <laughs> what do you mean save money? And then fast forward, I get laid off and happen to have this informational interview lined up. So it's like, for me, I may not always know in the moment, but then I can look back and say, okay, I see the path. Like I see how it was all coming together. I know I was said I would share two stories. That story was kind of long. So that's that's one example. Um. <laughs> so that's a great example. That's amazing. And I literally got just chilled because I think that's so amazing in terms of order and purpose. Um, so thank you for lifting that up. Um, so as a first time state legislator, you serve on four committees four, which I think is huge in itself. Um, and it seems like a lot because it's meetings, it's talking to a lot of people, it's coordinating, organizing, and making sure that everything falls within your agenda for the district. But um, given, you know, your position in your office, what has been the most meaningful pieces of legislation you've worked on and why? Right. Yeah. So um, it's definitely an exciting time for sure to, to be serving. I actually had a hearing with the Judiciary Committee yesterday around some proposed amendments to our state constitution. A lot of them focused on equity. So it was just really cool to be able to be in that space and, and hear um, those, those testimonies and, and read those bills from people. Surprisingly, well, I guess it's not surprisingly, but I say a lot of the general public 
doesn't know the inner workings of government. <laughs> so most of our bills have not been assigned to committee yet, the bills that were filed um, earlier this year. But I do wanna highlight two of my bills that could be in the Judiciary Committee and one that I expect to be in the Transportation Committee that I'm really, really excited about. Um, one piece of legislation was drafted in partnership with District Attorney Rollins, um, an act enabling prosecutors to carry out their ethical obligations and address unjust convictions. Headline here is one wrongful conviction is too many. Like it, it, there's no oops, my bad. One wrongful conviction is too many. And so what this legislation would do is allow prosecutors who believe their office made a mistake by convicting an innocent person should be allowed to ask a judge to either vacate that person's sentence um, so that way they're no longer serving, et cetera. Um, and could also file a motion in court if there is evidence that the defendant is innocent or that the law was improperly applied to, to the defendant. And I'm sure many of us saw the Trial 4 documentary um, on Netflix about Sean Ellis, um, which was right here in, in Boston. I was telling my mom like, oh my gosh, that's by my favorite pizza shop. Like I know that Walgreens, like all of it was just so, so familiar, so close to home. Um, but it would help for those types of questions questionable criminal convictions to make sure that we're actually doing the just and right thing and not holding people and having them serve time if there's enough evidence that they're that they did not commit the crime like no we should let them out so this is just a mechanism to allow prosecutors across the commonwealth to be able to do that um the other piece of legislation that i'm super excited with that i'm i filed with senator sonia chang diaz on the senate side um, we're calling it the start act with two t's um, an act relative to successful transition and re-entry to tomorrow for incarceration persons. Basically, this is just saying upon release or reentry from incarceration, that those who are community members who are returning actually receive a state ID. Because how do we expect them to access the vital services if they don't have identification? We're not going to reduce recidivism in, in that manner. Even to go to a sober home, it requires you to have state identification. The problem is for so many of our neighbors who are returning, they don't have a permanent home address. Right. Um, so this legislation expands um, what addresses someone could use in order to get that piece of identification. We know we need identification to access services and benefits. I talked about the sober home. Um, and so this legislation just helps to expand um, what addresses can be considered so that way our returning um, citizens can, can access vital resources to reduce recidivism. And then the third piece of legislation that I expect to go into the Transportation Committee, um, which I co-filed with Brett Miranda and Senator Collins, is an electrification of the Fairmount line um, on, the, on the commuter rail. For the 5th Suffolk, which is Miranda's district, the 12th Suffolk, which is mine, and the 1st Suffolk is Senator Collins, which encompasses portions of, of both of those districts, we are often isolated from other parts of the city. And we certainly know that many of the job opportunities are north of um, us here in the Suffolk 12th. And even though we're only six miles from the city center, our commute times are more than 23% longer than the rest of greater Boston. That makes no sense whatsoever. So by electric 
electrifying the Fairmount line. Um, it allows it to run more frequently. So run as often as a red line, orange line train. So not on the traditional commuter rail schedule um, to really make sure folks have access to services also would allow, um, we have great restaurants and businesses here in the 12th Suffolk that don't get enough foot traffic. Have folks come into the 12th Suffolk and see, you know, our restaurants and or eateries, I should say, because we don't have a sit down restaurant in Mattapan at least. Um, but we do in, in Dorchester, Lower Mills and Milton and enjoy those. It also reduces our carbon footprint, which is good for the environment yes. and helps to alleviate the need for a car or ease parking. So many Bostonians drive because they do not rely on the T. I know for me growing up in Boston, I have horror stories and flashbacks of certain bus lines. I just like, as an adult, I will never ride that bus because of insert all the reasons. And so I think there's an opportunity, particularly as we continue to grow in population size. There was a study that came out how Massachusetts and Boston in particular actually has the worst traffic in the country. We have passed Atlanta and DC, places that I've lived and worked in terms of traffic. Like that's how bad our congestion is. We need to have a reliable transit system to ease that burden. And if folks actually had faith and believed that the T would run on time, and if it went the places it needed them to go, I truly believe we would see a decrease in the amount of people who own cars and drive cars. And so that's what I'm hoping to get us to because it's good for uh, the environment and it's good for um, our economy as well. 1000%, that's so exciting. I hope, you know, it gets realized for sure. Um, you know, I think throughout all the parts of your career, I wanted you to talk about how um, mentorship played a role. Um, I know it seems like your first mentor was your mom. Uh, she was like the, you know, the, the kind of benchmark. So um, just talk about some of the mentors that have um, played a part in your, your life and um, how did they help you and what advice did they give to you? Yeah, so mentorship definitely plays a big part in my life. And my mom would say, um, because she was a single parent and she had a lot going on too, both personally and professionally, I truly am the product of it takes a village to raise a child. Like my next door neighbor, I called her ma <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, I had so many alternative moms, my godmother who has since passed um, as well, but just uh, believe in mentorship. And because my mom was a single parent, she wanted me to be around other accomplished, you know, young black women. She recognized the generational divide between the two of us and you know how sometimes you won't listen to something your mom says let your aunt say it or your cousin then you'll listen so she knew my mom knew the benefit of that so she had me in a lot of programs as as a child um, I remember being a part of the step ministry with Concord Baptist Church back in the 90s and the mentor or the leader of that program was a young woman um, who had just moved to Boston out of from college and she was actually a Delta, a member of Delta Sigma Theta, but she continues to be a lifelong mentor. Um, in terms of the things that she told me, I think she just always encouraged me to to be myself. And I certainly in high school like had self-esteem issues and had some absentee father issues as well. Um, so thank God for him and therapy um, to work through some of those things. <laughs> but I would say that, um, Gail really taught me to um, be myself and she was always a champion to go for it. Like there were things that I thought I wasn't qualified for. And she'd, like be, she'd say, oh my gosh, Brandy, you should totally apply. I can write your recommendation. You should totally go out for it. So she was a really good pusher for me. Um, 
which I which I appreciate it. Then I'd also say um, when I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, I was a part of this program called the Boston Lawyers Group, uh, the sophomore summer of college. And I was placed at the law department at Fleet Bank, which ultimately got bought by, by Bank of America, but was working in Fleet's law department. And there was um, this white man who was over the, the program, uh, his son actually went to, to Latin school, so we had that connection as well. And he was just like the best cheerleader ever. I don't even know how to describe it. His name was David. We still keep in touch as well. But he, um, we had to do a mock trial as part of that, just like you get some experience with all of the Boston Lawyer Group interns, so all the interns across the city. And that internship was basically, if you are not a white male, you can participate because it's to try to get more interest in the legal profession. So all any any woman or any other race of man besides white could apply to, to the program and get this um, opportunity. So we had to do a citywide mock trial. And there was this one kid who I think he had went back to, uh, I believe, um, I don't know if his family's from China, but he was gone. He So he had like been gone for two weeks and he came in to do the mock trial and he was just not prepared because he hadn't been there for like all of our practices. And I just like jumped from behind the bench and just inserted myself, <laughs> probably to make sure we didn't lose the trial. And that's like <laughs> David's fondest memory of me is he's like, if Brandy sees something going wrong, she's not just gonna sit there and let it go, <laughs> let it go wrong. She's gonna jump in and correct it. Um, and he thought it was so great. So um, David's another mentor and there are so many other, other mentors. And what I have found about mentorship is that it's almost like teaching. You don't necessarily know how what you're depositing, when it'll show up for the person. So there are times I'm just going through my day uh, thinking about something or doing something and then I'll hear or like it'll come to my memory something that someone has shared with me at whatever point in time. And I even view that as mentorship too, just like the words you're depositing into people that they can access when the moment calls for it. No, I love that. I love that. So I started Hot Mama Chronicles as an homage to the women in my family who are living in purpose, on purpose, flaws and all. Um, so my question to you is, do you think hot mamas are made or are they born? Oh, nature versus nurture. That question never goes away. <laughs> um, I think as it relates to hot mamas, does it have to be either or, Amelia? Can it be both? No, it, it doesn't. There's no right or wrong answer. So it really is beholden to the um, guest. Oh, great. So I'm going to go with both and, and here's, here's why. I, I truly think that hot mamas are born, hands down, period. And I think if their hot mamaness isn't cultivated, that it's easy for that fire to go out. Similarly, I think there are people who might not see themselves as a hot mama, so they wouldn't necessarily identify it in the hot mamas are born, but someone else might see that spark and give it the air that it needs or the ignition it needs for them to blossom into a hot mama flame. And so I actually think it's both. I'm going to say both and into to that question. <laughs> I love it. So again, deep thanks for, for lifting that up. As we come out of the pandemic, what gives you hope? Honestly, what gives me hope is each other. I think throughout this pandemic, we have seen our neighbors show up for people in ways that 
maybe was already happening, but we weren't paying attention because we were in the hustle and bustle of our own lives, or maybe because folks were seeing the need around them to be so great that they said, I have to do something no matter you know how, how small I'm gonna contribute. And so I just think about neighbors who organized to deliver groceries and food to seniors, which was already happening, it just seemed like there was more intentionality um, throughout the COVID pandemic. The same is true for shoveling for, for seniors, you know, for the, thankfully we had a relatively mild winter, but the times we did have snow and needed shoveling. I know I've seen stories of young people, children across the country who saw needs and like told their parents, hey, we gotta do something. Um, and created their own lunch bags or this one young girl, this was pre, pre-pandemic, but recognize um, the volume of homeless uh, people, people experiencing homelessness, I should say, in her community and how many of them were women and thinking about their menstrual needs and like organize like menstrual bags for them and to hand out to, to where they were. So I just think that this sounds so cliche, but we truly are the ones we have been waiting for. And I know when I was starting to dip my toe into advocacy here in, in Boston, I, I take my mom with me because she's a longer standing community member than I am. I'm like, mommy, come on this meeting with me. And sometimes she would leave the meetings just in such awe. And I'd say, mommy, like, why are you surprised? And she said, I don't know, growing up, you know, in Alabama, we just didn't really depend on the government to, to do for us. And she, she'll say that doesn't absolve them of their responsibility and commitment to, to communities of color, um, to communities experiencing poverty, et cetera. There was just this recognition that we do it ourselves. She's like, yeah, Brandy, we had to like have our gym retiled or they had to have something retiled and she's like people would just go bring bring tile people who could afford to buy 10 squares of tile you know would bring 10 squares people could only get one square or put a dollar on half a square whatever the case would contribute it and there was just this sense of communal purpose um that i think has been reinvigorated and reignited during this pandemic and again does not mean we do not hold government accountable yes we do that's why i ran we gonna do that but I think it's in addition to when I think about particularly for for the black community, how we thrived and flourished coming out of the Civil War during the period of Reconstruction. And it was literally all for us by us. And that was actually the period in time in America's history where the black community was at its pinnacle in terms of, you know, now when you hear about the black community, it's always like, highest level of poverty, highest health disparities, highest, you know, it's like all the bad things. That's when we were winning number one spot. And because we were winning, that's what propelled Jim Crow. That's what propelled the Ku Klux Klan. That's what propelled white mobs um, to lynch and terrorize. And I just use that as an example, the government only did but so much. Right. We came together for ourselves. And I just think there's power in us coming together beyond expecting the government to do their part, which they should, and we should hold them accountable. I just like, I just think back to remembering to like so much that is within us, like truly within us to fix the things that we need to have fixed, so. No, I completely agree. And I think, you know, in terms of this moment in time, you know, this is probably the beginning of a tipping point that will take 20 years and how COVID for all the trauma it has caused, I think it's also causing an opportunity for innovation and change. That's right. And so I think what I love about what you've lifted is that, you know, history tells us 
what happens when true change happens and that there is to be expected opposition. Yeah. But if we really stick together and connect with each other and think about equity and what that truly means, we can reimagine the world, not as it is, but as it could be. That's right. How exciting is that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, um, so my last question is, what are just some of the words of wisdom and encouragement that you can leave for the audience, um, especially those who are thinking about possibly running for an office? I mean, you're yeah. a state representative, and I, I always think in terms of power, power in Massachusetts is at the state house. You know, there's power in other forms, you know, and different offices, but you know, in terms of voting on the budget and how that trickles down, that's kind of, you know, front and center for my mind just on some sure. of the that have come up. But, you know, there are women that are thinking about running for city council in their towns. They're thinking about running for, you know, school committee. Um, they're thinking about running for town clerks and town positions. And they're, you know, I, 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 I see and hear these voices of, oh, I can't, like, I don't even know where to start. I'm, I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a space of fear, you know, because again, they're scared of failing. So it's just like, oh, I, I won't, how am I going to, how am I going to win? Like how, like, you know, we kind of talk ourselves out of these things before we even start. So if you can, given that you were there and that you, you rose to the occasion, you won, you're still winning, um, you know, and you're representing all of um, all of your experience and your authentic self. So if you can leave some words for wisdom to close us out, that would be great. Yeah, I would say I would reiterate my my words from from before. You matter. Your voice matters. Your perspective matters. I cannot say that enough. Um, it's so funny because what makes diversity great is not that we have a new Gap ad or United Colors of Benetton, like, oh, look at all this color diversity. But it's truly because all of our unique experiences, the things that we've been through, the way we process information, when we come together, makes the work product better. And in government's case, that's policy. And that's important for, for us in our community. Um, and I would also just encourage people Look into resources that are available out there. Don't sell yourself short because you think what it is. Talk to people who run for office or talk to people who work for programs that train people to run for office. Because sometimes what I have found for myself historically is I'll say, oh no, I can't do that thing. And I'll have all these reasons in my head of why without fact checking them. Like, are these reasons why like real things that happen or am I totally making this up <laughs> in my head? And so having those conversations, I think is worthwhile. Look into programs like Emerge, for example, um, for women. I mentioned the, the program that Counselor Mejia is, is launching for specifically for, for uh, people of color. And then I would also say, get involved. Like, I remember when I took the um, executive director role that I shared the story of, and I thought, well, maybe this could be, maybe maybe I should run for office because I had let that dream go a long, a long time ago for so many reasons that we've already talked about, imposter syndrome, thinking I wasn't worthy, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is part of, the reason for me is I'm such a private person and I thought that if I ran for office, I would no longer have a semblance of, of privacy and that did not sit well with me whatsoever. And I remember because I was focused on the issue of education with the organization, I would see Counselor Asabi George like everywhere because she was chair of the education committee. So at school committee meetings, at civic association, I only went to my local civic at that time, 
but she would be there a representative from her office. I'd see her at all the education related events that were happening throughout the city of Boston or at the state. And I think a year into that job, I was like, I really don't know anything about Counselor Sabi George's business, right? Like besides what she posts on social media. And I was like, and I, everywhere she is, I am. Okay, this might not be as bad as I think it is in my head. You know what I mean? Like, so just talk to people. And I would say volunteer on campaigns, volunteer with offices to understand the work, to start to build those relationships. Um, it, it, it is so immensely helpful, not only for making change in your community, but also for getting skills and seeing, oh, am I into this, am I not? Because it's the work you'd like to do and apply to the positions within folks' offices. I will say that I mentioned systemic racism at the onset of our conversation. I was having this conversation with my staffer, how the way the system is set up actually is a barrier for people of color, members of the BIPOC community accessing these um, positions. For one, the pay is not that is not the best. Like that's just number one. So then when you're thinking about, and it's a huge volume of work as well. Like it's not, it's not a traditional nine to five. This is, it is a huge volume of, of work. And specifically thinking about the black community, um, we already know what the wealth gap is, you know, $8 for a black community compared to over 240,000 for, for a white family here in the city of Boston. So when you find someone who has the skills to do, to do the job, are they gonna take those skills and do it at a lower paying job that's really demanding? Or are they gonna take those skills and, and use them at a job where they'll get compensated a better rate? Most of us would go for the better rate. So who does that leave in the pool? Folks who have the privilege to take a lower paying job because either their parents are gonna support them or they have a partner with a really fancy high paying job so they can be the one who gives back to the community and overwhelmingly the folks who have the privilege to access these jobs don't look like us and so it's kind of like a cyclical um problem that i i observed as i was hiring for for my staffer and like I have many ideas on how to break it, but that's not for this conversation. All of that to say, get involved, share ideas, reach out to your local elected official, have conversations about what it's really like, and just don't be afraid to, to use your voice. I cannot stress that enough. It's your tax dollars at work, so use your voice for sure. I love it, I love it. Well, Rep Brandy Fluker Oakley, thank you for your willingness to share your story. You are a true gift to the 12th district and a part of helping to bring forward much needed progress and for giving a voice to the voiceless. You are a great role model and a breath of fresh air. We see you and appreciate you. Please visit electbrandy.com to learn more about her policy agenda and sign up for her newsletter. Thank you for listening to Hot Mama Chronicles. Please subscribe and connect with me on www.ameliaauberg.com. Remember, the road to being a hot mama is about the journey and not the destination. One love.